The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 52. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the words that we sang, precious words, Precious words describing what we have in you. What power, what strength, what prosperity, what peace, what rest we have in you. Glory be to your name. Glory. Glory be to your name, for you are a glorious, glorious king. Glorious. And by your grace, by your mercy, you have turned that glory not against us, but for us. You are a great king. You are a good king. You are a close-in king. You are for us. And, Lord Jesus, we, we need you. We need you to come. I pray that you would come now and speak and work. I pray that you would topple the thrones, as we just sang a few minutes ago, topple the thrones that stand between us and your glory, the glory of shalom pray that you would topple these thrones that exist in each one of us that we are so prone to pine after and run towards. We are prone to wander. So I pray, topple those thrones. I have words on a page here I'm going to speak, but we need you to speak. We need you to speak words to us by your Spirit, and we need you to give us, me, us, hearts that will listen, hearts that will hear. I pray that you would give us grace to hear um, both sides of the sermon today. I, I fear that some might hear one side or the other side, but you mean for us to, to hear both. That's how you speak in your word here. I pray that 
you would take these words and use them as you see fit to speak, to speak clearly, to speak powerfully. Do the miracle here that, that we need to turn us from these, these thrones to you, to fill our hearts with a deeper, bigger affection than the affections that might presently fill our hearts. Only you can do this. So be glorified. Glorify yourself today by, by saving, by redeeming, by carrying us, by carrying us a little bit further here to the end. In your name I pray, amen. Last week and today, we are looking at the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapters 14 through 16, the life of King Asa. Last week we looked at chapters 14 and 15, which ended on a note of courage, the courage that we need to, to live truly useful lives, lives that are courageous because they are believing the promises of God. We are leaning on the promises of God that our work will be rewarded, that this this God is a rewarding God. God certainly rewarded Asa's work in the first chapter of, excuse me, the first paragraph of chapter 14. We see Asa ridding the land of idols and God rewarding or recompensing that work with peace and prosperity and rest, shalom. But that shalom was interrupted by an invasion by an army of Ethiopians and Libyans beginning in chapter 14, verse 9. Totally outnumbered. Asa cries out to God, and God defeats the Ethiopians. God does. More than that, he doubles down and blesses Judah with much plunder. They are flesh. Then, right at this moment, chapter 15, God sends a prophet to Asa into the country with a promise. If you seek God, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Then he reminds him of what forsaking him for other gods results him results in. He reminds him of the time of the judges when society just crumbled. Asa responds to the promise quickly, putting away even more idols. And all the while we read in chapter 15, verse 9, that lots of people are defecting to Judah from the northern kingdom. At this point in history, the tribes of Israel have split into two different kingdoms, a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Asa is Judah. And like East and West Berlin during the Cold War, lots of people are defecting down from this northern kingdom to enjoy the prosperity of the south. So Asa even cleanses some of those defectors' lands of idols as well. He's very zealous. All of this results in a great revival among the people, chapter 15, verse 15. All Judah rejoiced in God. They sought Him, and He was found by them. Now, chapter 15 ends with three very important details. First, verse 17, Asa wasn't perfect. He didn't take down all the high places of the defecting areas. Nevertheless, the historian who is recording all of this observes this about Asa, that his heart was wholly true 
all his days. We'll come back to that. Second, Asa takes gold and silver vessels from some that he inherited from his father and some of his own, takes them out of his own treasure, and he places them in the temple of God for the worship of God as sacred gifts. And third, there was peace. Peace for another 25 years, a long time. Asa's first 35 years were, for the most part, prosperous, peaceful, and restful for the people of God. Until chapter 16. Let me read that. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Bashah, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or to come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejan, Dan, Abomaim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building. And with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The Acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. The surprising word of the Lord. The king of Israel, Baasha, has pretty much had enough, and like the Soviets in East Berlin during the Cold War, he builds a wall in the form of an army and a fort at Ramah to keep his people from defecting. And Asa responds by cutting a deal with Syria to the north of the northern kingdom, Israel. And in exchange for payment of silver and gold, Ben-Hadad of Syria will attack Israel from the north and open up a second front in this war and distract Baasha. Um, 
He'll be forced to withdraw his troops from the south to defend against Syria. The pressure will be relieved from Asa and Judah, and that's exactly how it works out. Syria attacks from Israel's north, Baasha, and Israel have to withdraw, and Asa can simply waltz right into Ramah, take the timbers and the stones away. Easy. Done. Threat averted. Except Hanani a prophet is sent by God and rebukes Asa. Verse 7, you, you relied on the king of Syria, not God. Do you remember 25 years ago? How, but 25 years ago, but how could you forget? I, when I myself defeated a million Ethiopians and Libyans before your eyes, they were so much bigger than one little fort and a group of soldiers from Israel. They were so much bigger, but you relied on me, and I rescued you. I did this, God is saying, because it's in my character. Verse 9, God is constantly scanning the earth, poised and ready to respond with strong support. Strong support to anybody whose heart is blameless toward Him. You, you saw that before. You experienced it. Don't you remember? But this business with Syria was foolish. Why? Because your real enemy is Syria, not Israel. And they got away. So, war will continue. It's just a consequence of your actions. So, like before, Asa humbles himself before the Lord. No. Shockingly, if, we, if we've been tracking the previous two chapters, shockingly, uh, Asa does not. A different Asa appears. He, he falls into a rage at God's messenger, not just throwing him in jail, but putting him in the stocks, shaming and torturing him. And I can picture some people protesting to King Asa, don't do this, O king. This is, this is not like you. This is not you. Is it? Then Asa abuses them cruelly as well. And again, the, the passage ends with three very important details. Three years pass, and, and Asa develops a severe foot disease, but still will not seek the Lord. Verse 12. Then two years later, he dies, never having sought the Lord. The historian notes a, a little detail here at the end that Asa was buried in a tomb that, quote, he cut for himself, I think, symbolizing his heart of self-sufficiency. The people who did not know him as well as the historian, however, they, they loved the prosperity that he brought, and they celebrate him. They celebrate his life. The very great fire in his honor. So, what is going on here? And especially if you were here last week, you may be asking, what is going on? Because... Chapter 15, that, that, that quote, the heart of Asa was true all his days, and then this. What's going on? Note that, that there is no mention of some kind of mental disorder. Even the ancient Hebrews, long before Freud, had a way to say somebody was crazy. There's no, there's no mention of that. There's no clue, no marker for that here. That's not Asa. So what gives? I think... What's happening is the, the historian in chapter 15, verse 17, is saying, that's, that's what I saw. That's, that's the phenomenon that I observed in Asa. I'm not going to edit it out. 
I'm going to leave it there because for 35 years, that's, that's what I saw. That's what I saw. I'm going to leave it in there as a marker, as a marker to just how jarringly different this other Asa was. In the final years of his life, out, out from underneath 25 years of peace and prosperity and rest, another Asa emerges. The historian, the writer, wants us to see that and feel jarred by it. So as we consider this different Asa, we, we ourselves are, are confronted with, I, I think, the most dangerous obstacle to faith in our place in our time. More dangerous than atheism or pornography. Seriously. And this, this leads us to the first of two points today, two points, two, two crucial elements that we must face, we must go through as we wrestle with the life of Asa and as we consider ourselves in light of Asa's life, a negative and a positive, these two points. First, the, neg- the negative, believe the warning, believe the warning of the deceitful trial of prosperity. Believe the warning of the deceitful trial of prosperity. Asa's life is, is, is one big warning to us. One big warning. Prosperity is a trial. A deceitful one. Thus, we should beware it. And we... We are prosperous, right? We, we are the most prosperous generation in its most prosperous season in currently, I think, the most prosperous state in the most prosperous country in the history of history. Us, right, right here, right now. Not, not all of us in every way, but, but that is us. And I find it interesting, just by way of an historical note, that Asa's reign ran just about as long as our own period of American history since Reagan took office. When most of us have experienced a breathtaking period of increasing prosperity, when some of us, but but most of us have not been touched by war, our home values have steadily risen, and I think, if I'm right, just this week, the Dow hit 25,000. An amazing period with with plenty of downs, 9-11 being one of them recessions, plenty of downs, but a breathtaking period of increasing prosperity like the world has never seen. 35 years of powerful, dangerous trial for us. Prosperity is a trial. And we can see this from the text because both times a prophet comes and addresses Asa, you would think it would be the other way. It is actually, it is not before the threat of war, but after. It is after the war is over and they are flush with plunder. Then a prophet shows up and gives God's promises. You'd think it would be before the battle, but it's not. It's after both times. Why? Because God has just rewarded them with prosperity 
And, and that was actually a dangerous, dangerous threat. More dangerous even than dying by war. There was a threat to Asa and to us that, that is more dangerous than, than terrorism or, or uh, all kinds of threats than we can imagine. It is what our hearts will do with peace and prosperity and rest, whether our hearts will bend towards God in that or bend away from Him. We are all prone to forsake the giver for His gifts. When we get that first good job, when we, when we make that final mortgage payment and have the note-burning ceremony, when our 401k hits enough and we can comfortably retire, these are not neutral moments. These are moments of trial, of testing. Prosperity is a trial because it can distract and blind me and you from the real threats that are out there. I... I each, each one of these, I, 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 can, I can see myself in each one of these. If these, are, if these at all hit with you, they, they sure hit with me. That, that we can give great attention to keeping the right investment mix in our 401k, but neglect to give careful attention to the trajectory of our own souls, whether we will actually inherit real treasure after we face our final and greatest enemy, death. We can fixate on getting our kid into that competitive college so that they can get a good job, always running them from here to there and neglect cultivating in them a sincere love of God, the true source of shalom for them. We can become consumed with getting enough equity out of our houses, all the while considering or never considering how God might use me or you to bring justice and equity to the world, to this valley, to my neighborhood. We can come to so prioritize politics. We can, we can become totally energized about whether or not some statue in some southern city should remain up or come down, all the while caring little about the idols, the statues in our hearts that are drawing us away from the living God. Prosperity is a trial because Money and politics, they, they have this gravitational pull that, that draws us in our hearts to, to shift weight. It's very subtle, just a shifting of weight. To transfer our, our love and loyalty from God to them. And that, that transfer in Asa's heart is vividly, hauntingly portrayed as... In order to pay off Ben-Hadad, he literally goes into the temple of God and takes away the very same silver and gold vessels that he had once sacredly gifted to God and takes them out to give them to his actual Savior. That's what happens in our hearts when this shift, the shift of weight occurs. And the scary thing is, it seems like Asa never saw it in himself. Never saw it. This is another reason why prosperity is such a dangerous trial. It shields us from who we really are. Prosperity deceives us. This is what the historian is wrestling with between these two Asas. The real Asa was hidden from view for so long under this, 
this pleasant veneer of success, under this, this, this veneer of, of, of an amiable achiever, all-American kid. No one could see under the see under the veneer of the amiable achiever to his heart that was drifting and defecting from God. But you say, he did so many great things for so long. He, he trusted in God's promises. God even did a miracle through him. Yes, but we are all capable of doing the things that bring reward in this world that God has created. As we said last week, God has created this world, the deep structures of this world, to reward things like integrity and righteousness and acting with courage. We're all capable of doing those things, but for the wrong reasons. We're all capable of loving the gift without the giver. And for, and, and, and some of us, some of us can do this for a long time. Some people can do this for decades because we've been gifted with traits that yield success in this world, natural intelligence and personal discipline. Surely that, that was Asa. Heaven for him, however, seems to have been peace and prosperity and, and rest, but no God. Once he got those things, no God was needed. And of course, did not Jesus himself say that on the final day, some will come to him and say, didn't we even cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say to these people, I, I never knew you. So the warning here, the warning for us is to beware the dangerous trial of prosperity. To, to, to wake us up so that we would not presumptuously think that we are just automatically okay. It is no wonder that Jesus said that it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He didn't say that about, about pornographers and sex traffickers. He said that about rich people. But... The thing about Jesus giving such a hard-nosed warning about wealth is, is this deceptive characteristic to prosperity. Think about the time when, when Jesus um, said to the Pharisees, your father is the devil. Man, he's hard-nosed. Jesus wasn't saying that to just inflict them, just to win an argument and, and give a really good insult. He was saying that because they did not know that. They themselves did not know that Satan was functioning as their father. So when Jesus gives us a hard-nosed warning, it is not because he is just enjoying trying to inflict us and whip us into line. He is trying to show us something that maybe we cannot see in ourselves. He's actually being gracious, hard-nosed grace. And, and by the way, I, I, I do not in one little bit diminish sexual immorality or slavery by that last comment. But with those two sins, the person usually knows they're sinning. 
But in the case of prosperity, the danger is greater because we don't even know we're drifting from God. It shields us from it. So note here that prosperity is not actually the core problem. Prosperity is dangerous because it deceitfully shields us from the real problem, which is whether or not God is God for us. That's the question. That's the question for Asa. Is God God or not? It's the difference between um, a God-assisted life where I set the agenda and God exists to fulfill it for me or one where God gets to be God, where he is my provider, my Lord, my benefactor, my everything. It is either or. And prosperity creates this great environment, great environment for our hearts to put our trust in money and politics and not God, and we don't even know it. There, there are clues. There are clues. Have you ever noticed how demanding money and politics are of your time and your energy? How hard it is to make money and then how much time it demands of you once you have it to keep it. You ever noticed how much stress and money and energy it takes to get your party and your candidate into office and then once they are there, how much it takes to keep them there and how precarious that is? And then once they're there, how little they actually deliver. Money promises us rest but delivers exhaustion. We feel that. There's clues. Politics promises us peace, but we only end up with more war, frankly. Now, again, there is nothing wrong with money, politics, or medicine, for instance. Nothing inherently wrong with these things. It's just that they make really demanding and really bad saviors. We feel these clues. We feel them, but nevertheless, if you're like me, you, you hear this story and, and, and I, I feel unsettled by it. I, by, the, by the possibility of self-deception in my own life because the definition of self-deception is I can't see it. And it is dangerous. And... It unsettles me because I, we, we, we recoil from looking straight on at how weak we are. We, we, we resist weakness. We resist of thinking of ourselves as weak and our, our prosperity is a great help, help to us in resisting that thought. But this, this unsettled feeling is not bad. It's not bad. It's not something that we should just reject out of hand and recoil from. It just means that we're seeing a little more clearly. We're, we're bewaring where we should be bewaring. We're feeling the warning of God. So, so what do we do with this? What do we do with it? Well, the first and most important thing to do with it is to believe it. To, to believe that it is true. That we have a word called apostasy in the English language for a reason. Believe that that is possible. Do not dismiss it. Do not let pride come in and, and rob this moment of its power. Prosperity can lure us away from the living God forever. Believe it. Let the, let the warning sit and do its work. Believe it because 
This is actually how God keeps you if you are in him. This is how God keeps me. Believing the negative warning sets us up rightly for what comes next. We, we don't stay here in this, in this unsettledness, but we need to feel it. And if you are not a Christian, believe it. Do not, do not believe either the, the voice that might come to you and, and say to you right now, oh, I, I've gone on too long. Everything you were just saying, yep, that's, that's me, that's my life, and I've gone on for far too long. All those things that you've said, I, I've done all those things, and it's just too late. Don't listen to that voice. That's the suicidal regret of Judas. Grace has a better word for you. Do believe, though, that you have an enemy and he is out to destroy you. This is no neutral moment. He's out to destroy you and he does not have you yet. Grace has a better word. So what do we do? Well, we keep listening to God. We keep looking into his word and there's a lot of things that I could say now at this point. We, we, we could say about dealing with prosperity. Um, we, could, we watched this documentary the other night about the minimalist movement. Um, you could join the minimalist movement, sell all your stuff. Um, maybe that would be good. I don't know. You could attend Dave Ramsey seminars. Maybe that would be good. Maybe. Um, but the central point of this passage, upon this point, everything else turns. The next point we're going to look at, Dave Ramsey, minimalist movements, anything else you decide to do when you leave here today with your prosperity turns on this one thing. So this, this one thing is this. Believe the promise, this is the second point, believe the promise of God's strong support. Believe the promise of God's strong support. I get this again from chapter 16, verse 9. Just famous, wonderful words. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Believing this promise is crucial because everything else turns on this. Everything else turns on this because that, that phrase, strong support, strong support is exactly what our idols of money and politics promise us. Why we are drawn to them by this promise of strong support. They promise, but always fail to deliver. Money promises us to strongly support us, and it does, right up until the moment that it doesn't, and the market crashes. Politics promises us strong support, right up until the point the culture changes, and you're in the group that's left out in the cold. We need our hearts to be, to be drawn away from loving the world and the things of the world, and, and the way that this happens is, is not by necessarily by selling all your stuff. At least it doesn't begin there. It begins by turning by faith, by turning by faith to the one source of strong support, this God, the God who is actually there. 
It begins by turning to him. So we need to see this God who who stands behind this promise. We need to see just how good he is, how faithful he is. We need our faith drawn away from, from weak objects, from objects that cannot produce what they promise to an object of our faith that will never fail us. We Christians need this. We need our faith to rest on this God, the God of this promise. He does not expect us to do this perfectly. God's eyes are drawn not to the perfect, not to those who actually have no need of a Savior, but to those who cry out to Him helpless, sick and tired of trying to create their own strong support sick and tired of being let down from these these faulty thrones that make grandiose promises but never deliver. Those who say, I am weary and heavy laden, the eyes of a Savior are drawn to you to give you rest, to give you real shalom. What matters above everything else is that in our trial of prosperity or in any other trial, we turn our hearts toward Him. We move toward Him. Watch Asa's descent. This This is what he refused to do. Everything in Asa's life turned on that, whether or not he would turn towards God. What matters is not the perfection of your faith in His promise, but that your faith would rest on this promise-keeping God. So, how do we know that this promise is really for us, for me? How can I really bank on it? We get here by believing another promise, an equally famous promise, Romans 8 that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who has already done the hardest thing by sending his, his, the perfect king of Judah to die for us, to spill his blood for us so that we could be cleansed and stand blameless before this God, this God who has already done this, How will he not also sovereignly ordain all things, good and bad alike, prosperity and illness and everything in between, to be for our our awesome, infinite, ultimate good, true, abiding, authentic shalom? So by faith we stand, we stand in this promise by standing in Christ on the ground of what He did, the ground of His dying for us. And we stand in what He experienced, God's eyes being drawn to Him to give Him strong support by raising Him from the dead. A strong support that money and politics could never match. What president or what dollar bill can raise somebody from the dead and bring that kind of shalom? 
We are united to him by faith, and so now we stand with him in, in his experiencing this promise perfectly, blameless, in, this, in the strong support of this, of this generous, responding, rewarding God. And yet, um, I think, well, if, if you're like me, m- many of us, th- this is where we get stuck, right here. What, yes, what, what matters is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the object of your faith. But we are still prone to wander. And so God, in His ever-present, steadfast love, always keeping us, will not let us go. He won't let us go. And in order to bring us back, He will bring trials. He will bring consequences. He will take us to places that we don't want to go. He may allow us to wander. He may actually fill us with prosperity for the very purpose that that we would be able to feel the emptiness, the futility of it. He will allow allow us to feel sickness, that we would feel how much we need Him. I, I don't mean to say that every trial, every blessing, every illness is God disciplining us. God is always doing a million things, and we only see a few of them. But the point here is, therefore, not to figure out, well then, okay, in this situation, is God punishing me or not? Because that's where we get stuck. We are prone to think that God, as He is keeping us, God in His work to, to keep me to the end and to bring me to shalom is, as He as he loosens my death grip on the very things that will kill me, I, I am prone in that moment to think, no, you're, you're taking away my shalom. I'm, I, I'm prone to think, no, 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 don't, don't do that. We fear what God is doing. We, we fear where God might take us. We are prone to think that God has become my enemy. That God is no longer the provider of my shalom, but He's now the disruptor of my shalom. You're messing it up, God. Of course, like Asa, you can't say that to God. So what do we do? We get angry and we abuse the people around us instead because you can't abuse God in anger. That would be sin. So the fight here... In the words of the book of Hebrews is to not despise the discipline of the Lord, to not despise the keeping works of God in our life. To see that the fight is not with God, but it is a fight. A fight to believe that He is as good as He says He is. Everything turns on this. Everything. Everything turns on what we do with God's promise and with the lie of the enemy, the lie of the garden that questioned whether God is really good, really generous, really a a God who is there and who rewards those who seek Him. Is that really true? This is a fight, a fight to believe that God is as good as He says He is. A God that when He does bring discipline, when He does bring hardship, that He is also a relenting God. A God who loves mercy. A God who loves to relent. Even after he has verbally declared judgment, he loves, he loves to relent when he sees a broken and contrite heart. 
Not sacrifices, like David said in Psalm 51. Otherwise, I would do it. This is a God who loves to relent when he sees a broken and contrite heart. He is a relenting God. This is a fight to believe that this is a God who will never be satisfied for us with the cheap, tawdry trinkets that this world has to offer. He will never be satisfied for us with with treasures that corrode, with wood, hay, and stubble. He will never rest until our hearts are drawn away from the, the, the fake, false flourishing that this world calls shalom. He will not be satisfied until we possess an authentic, true shalom, a real, supernatural shalom that can meet you on your deathbed even. When all you hear is the beeping of those machines in your final moments. And though through pain and through tears, that that shalom can enable you to laugh. To laugh at your final enemy, death. With trembling. Not perfectly, but to laugh. I want to ask you, are you in this fight? Are you fighting? That's the question. Are you resisting or not? If not, will you join in? And if you've left, if you've left the resistance, will you rejoin? Because this is a, this is a relenting, rewarding God who is, who is poised, who is, who is tightly wound to bring us strong support in Christ. This is, this is the fight. This is it. Because it's the only way, this is the only way that God can be restored in our lives to being God. to being our provider, to being our sovereign benefactor. We we can never go back in time and restore the vessels that we stole from the temple and gave to our, our false gods. But we don't need to. It's not sacrifice that He wants from us. It is a broken and contrite heart, a heart that, that feels the personal offense of this to God but believes that He is a relenting, generous, gracious God. This is what draws His eye. And this is what enables, if you will, God to be God again over us, which is the very thing we need because He Himself is the only source of true, authentic, abiding shalom. This is His whole purpose for existing, for being God, is to glorify Himself by giving Himself to us, and we get shalom. His promise, we fight to believe it, it tells us that there is nothing to fear and everything to gain. Now, we cannot do this alone. We, we need each other for this fight. Uh, you, by, by definition, 
we cannot fight self-deception by ourselves. Um, no one ever did this. It's impossible. Um, and as I've, someone else has written, and I've, I've shared with a few of you, um, usually in churches today, we only hear about accountability groups for things like addiction or sexual purity. But if the warnings of God about prosperity are true, and they are, maybe we need accountability groups for each other to know, am, am I deceived? Am I, am, am I bending away from God or am I, am I bending towards the one true source of shalom? Which is, and I, I can't see, brother, will you help me? Will you join in with me? Will you lock arms with me, sister? The, the stakes are too high not to. We, we need each other for this. To know, what am I doing with my wealth? What, what, what does this say about my heart and its trajectory? What, what matters is the trajectory of your heart, not where you are at today on that trajectory, but that you are moving towards God. So, brother, will you help me move towards God? Sister, will you help me? Can I help you? We need this. I, I need this. And we, we need this because as, as we believe the promises of God, that this is what frees us. This is what, what frees us from that, that little list of fixations that I mentioned earlier. To no longer fixate on money and politics as saviors. Faith in this God is what frees us to then re-employ our money and our time and our attention to the real threats of life, to the things that are really important, to the things that will, will truly matter 10,000 years from now, to a truly useful life. It all begins, it all turns on believing, fighting to believe these promises, fighting to believe that the God who is there is a rewarding God. To live truly useful lives, lives, it's as simple as this, driven by love of God and love of neighbor. The fight for faith and the promises, and especially this promise, reorients us, reorients us from the, the, the sweet pride that is really all about self. It, it, it dissolves that, that smiling, winsome pride that robs us of fruit. And it turns us to true shalom for us and for the world. So may God give each of us this faith. May He give us this faith and yet still more faith. May He help my unbelief and yours. May He give us faith to believe the dangers that lurk beneath the, the veneer of our prosperity and, and faith to believe that He is so much better. I, a sermon cannot do this. We need God for this. Will you join me in asking Him for it? Will you, will you join with me to, in, in asking Him for this miracle that He would really do it in us, that He would revive us in this way? We need this. We need it. And oh, would it, be, would it be to our joy to experience it? So much deeper and sweeter joy than anything money and politics can offer us. So may He do this in us. 
that he would get much glory, much glory by being our provider. He is a provider that does so much more than we can possibly imagine. So give us faith because we can't see it, Father. And may he give us faith to turn and trust him for a future that is truly too good, too good for us to possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, as I prayed at the beginning, I, I pray now that you would let both your negative and your positive promise sit heavily on us. Would you let the, the positive promise relieve us from the unsettledness, from the heavy negative promise? Would you do that by giving faith? Perhaps even to someone right now, this very moment, would you give faith? Forgive us for the times when we have feared your keeping. Forgive us for the times this week where I have feared your keeping and resisted it. Forgive us and show us yourself, I pray. Give us faith to believe that you are truly as good as you say you are. Unsatisfied for anything less than perfect shalom for us. I believe, help my unbelief. Help us. Father, do it all that your name might be made greater. Please, in us, Father, do not let our hallowing of you be hollow. Please let that not be the case here in anyone. But we pray, would you please sovereignly move among us? Fill us with faith in you. To the greatness, to the glory, to the fame of your name, we pray. Amen. We move now to communion. If the men could come forward. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.